Hello everyone, it's October 2nd, 2018. This week we're talking about propylene. Is this the future of rocket fuel? We're also diving into all the ways of generating power in space in our very first data relay segment with our guest, Chris Bush. So let's power up and fuel up and lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 178 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. <clears throat> all right, so, so this week we have a really cool... Well, we have a nice, good launch segment coming up, so we're going to try to get through the rest of the show yeah. as quickly as we can. Yeah. Well, so I've been talking about season three, and you know, we talked about a couple of changes we were going to make, and the really big one was getting Dennis on, and the next really big one was starting the data relay segment. So since this is the first data relay, I I guess this is the first episode of season three. Welcome. Yeah. I I say that with a with a lot of like ponderousness. I mean, like I'm excited about it, but I'm I'm just trying to think if there's a better definition. I, I guess it's, I guess it's 178 is is season three. So I never thought of the show as really being in terms of seasons anyway. Yeah. It's more like phases, and sometimes sure. it can be a bit murky. And maybe it was when Dennis came on that that was the beginning. I don't know. Maybe we should call them uh, stages. Oh, stages or uh, blocks. This could be block three. <laughs> Okay, cool. So uh, I'm basically trying to delay us as long as possible from talking about this week in spaceflight history because I got the date wrong. Oh, did you? I grabbed the date for the beginning of September instead of the beginning of October. But I mean, we had winners anyway. So we had we had uh, two winners, Law Loving on Twitter. I, I believe that's a pseudonym, and then uh, Chubby Turkosi. Both got it right. So this week in spaceflight history is the seventh of September, 1958. Uh, is the first flight of Black Knight, which is uh, a sounding rocket. So it was designed and constructed by the Royal Aircraft Establishment, RAE, and Saunders Row. Saunders Row is based out of the Isle of Wight, W-I-G-H-T. So the clue for last week was Black Out of Wight. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought it was a good clue. Too bad it was one week short of being a year early. Yeah, I catastrophize my failures. It's not a week <laughs> late, it's a, it's a year early. Uh, so anyway, as the Cold War is kind of doing its thing, <laughs> the UK decides, hey, we need some ICBMs, or, or at least some long-range missiles. So they started to develop a rocket called Blue Streak. And Blue Streak was actually a relatively successful uh, first stage for a number of other rockets. But the the thing that Blue Streak was missing was good information on how to get it back into the atmosphere. So in order to collect more information on what things re-entering the atmosphere look like, of course, they needed to run some real tests. They needed a, a test bed. And there weren't any good missiles just lying around that they could get their hands on. So they decided to develop a second rocket called Black Knight that would actually tell them how to build Blue Streak. So yeah, they they ended up uh, commissioning Black Knight um, from Saunders Row. And the other big uh, contractor was Bristol Sidley, and they built the Gamma rocket engine. It's a hydrogen peroxide and kerosene rocket, which pretty much only the UK has ever really used that combination. And the Gamma rocket, it started out as the Gamma 102. They ended up switching to the Gamma 103. And the Gamma rocket is really, really crazy. 102 and 103 were both four-chamber rockets, uh, but later, uh, a later version of Gamma actually had two force. 
yeah, eight rockets, I believe, or eight, uh, eight combustion chambers. I love these multiple chamber rockets. Uh, but anyway, Black Knight uh, was designed to fly up to 800 kilometers, and it flew out of Woomera in uh, Australia. And they, like I said, they did 22 flights, and every single one of them was successful. They had no major failures. Oh, uh, Sam in the chat says that Beale rocket engines were also kerosene and hydrogen peroxide. Thank you. Hmm. Um, so on these 22 flights, uh, a couple of them were actually joint flights with the U S they actually teamed up with, uh, with the U S but basically what they were doing was they were testing, uh, not heat shields, but just nose cones. So they tried copper and silica and an asbestos derivative called Durestos, and they use spherical noses and conical noses. And they, you know, just put all these up in the air and saw what happened when they came back down. Um, so like I said, Black Knight was built to help develop Blue Streak. Um, and so it actually had a lot of influence on the development of Blue Streak. Blue Streak then later went on to be a first stage for other rockets. Uh, first was Black Prince, which I don't believe ever actually flew. And then Europa, which did do some test flights, but Europa ended up um, being a, a bit of a mess. It was too low payload for its price point, or I guess it was too expensive for its payload point. The Blue Streak first stage never had any failures, but the second and third stages both had uh, failures. In fact, every single flight of Europa had a failure of some kind, uh, and so Europa ended up dying. But Europa was the, the rocket with the eight-chamber single rocket. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but yeah, so Black Knight, the UK's like only successful you know rocket, and it, it was... a. Uh, suborbital rocket but you know you I, I think you could have put a second stage on it and and gotten something small to orbit maybe uh but anyway there you go that's uh that's the first flight of black knight so what is our clue for next week and this was a hard one to come up with so yeah well thank you to chris bush who you'll hear more from later but thanks to chris for coming up uh with a space flight event because i had something else that just didn't work very well next week in 1977 the clue is tail off tail as off in tail off you know, t- tail off as in tail off. Yeah, tail off as in tail off. All right, well, if you think you know what that is in reference to, listeners, just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Vector Launch Incorporated files a patent for propylene for its engine. So um, Vector Space, yeah, I mean, we've talked about them before and really this segment is going to be more about i guess what we want to discuss is you know the pros and cons of using propylene because uh, this was brought up by a couple of listeners who wanted us to you know maybe address it and i suppose why not because actually i don't know as much about propylene as a fuel as i probably should um in fact i had to look up exactly what it was um and so for anyone who's interested it's c3 yeah c3h6 yeah c3h6 so if you think about a carbon backbone you've got two carbons with a single bond and the other two carbons with the double bond and then hydrogens everywhere so i guess it's really like a good way of transporting hydrogen because hydrogen we'll talk about it shortly but yeah hydrogen like in its pure form i guess you could say is not necessarily the most ideal fuel for certain storage reasons and things like that uh okay so here's the chemistry as if anybody really 
is going to give that big of a care. <laughs> um, so two propylene react with nine oxygens to, to form six carbon dioxides and six hydrogens. Or uh, six waters, sorry. Almost said uh, dihydrogen oxide. So, you know, that's that's really nice, clean. Uh, ho- I, I hope that it's going to be clean burning and that you don't wind up with a bunch of carbon monoxides kind of uh, mm-hmm. floating around. Yeah, I mean, just thinking from outside of, you know, rocketry, I feel like the trend is that the simpler the hydrocarbon, the cleaner the burning. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. So this is, yeah, after methane and uh, what's it, butane? I guess this is about as, you know, three carbons. So so is this the cleanest fuel that you could use apart from hydrogen itself? I mean, is this, I guess, a little bit better than methane? I believe it's going to be dirtier burning than methane. Oh, it is going to be dirtier. Okay. I, I believe, yeah. Just just, just guessing. So I, I guess we have to compare it to, yeah, methane and RP1. So as far as ISPs, uh, propylene is, is a pretty big jump over rp1 it's you know theoretical isp uh is 364 whereas rp1s is 354 so you know that's it's almost 10 uh seconds bigger it's actually 354.6 is uh, rp1 um, but it's it's not as as efficient as methane uh, methane's isp is 368 Point three, but it, it's it's pretty close. So this is you know super super efficient. But the problem is that its density goes down. So RP one just at at room temperature, I believe its bulk density is uh, eight hundred and twenty. Propylene is six hundred and eleven, and methane is four hundred and twenty three. So it's uh, a gain over methane on bulk density, but a drop down from RP one. Uh, but the chat suggests that it actually can be densified pretty reasonably just by cooling it down like uh, uh like SpaceX does. So mm-hmm. I mean potentially propylene could, you know, really pack a punch um depending on on how much it could be densified. But Sam in the chat I think says a, a important thing here uh when he says that uh I doubt vector can actually do significant densification with their dinky mobile launch setup. So I, I think that's <laughs> a, a pretty a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good assessment. identification yeah 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 so we have these pros and these cons and i suppose that from what we're looking at here the the big advantage well i I don't know, actually. So you can see how it is better or not as good as RP1, and you can get similar differences between this and hydrogen. But when it comes to methane, they are you know, fairly similar with a little bit of a trade-off. And so I guess the question that I would have is why use propylene and not just go with methane? Because I just don't see why, why go with that as a propellant. Plus, it can't be, or actually, can you manufacture this on the surface of Mars, which is what everyone likes to bring up? Yeah, I mean, if you if you can make methane, you can make propylene. Technically, you can make RP-1 on Mars. It's just whether it's a good idea or not. I mean, everything's always a trade-off, right? Like, methane is super efficient, but it's it's got super low density. Same thing with hydrogen. Like, it, it's all trade-offs. So, I think it's really cool to see a new... A new option on the market. Um, of course, you know nobody's going to be able to use their exact engine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to develop other engines uh, that are outside of that patent. There's just so many different companies trying to design different spacecraft. So yeah. having different, the more options that are available for your right. rocket propellant seems to just be beneficial. And then David, another reason why um, this is potentially a really good 
uh, propellant is because it's autogenously pressurized, right? So Vector's engine doesn't have a turbo pump, I believe. And I think all they have to do is heat up the propylene because propylene has got a really high uh, vapor pressure. Uh, I, I looked it up. I don't remember what it was, but it was pretty high. So I, I think all they have to do is just, you know, lightly heat uh, the two tanks, the two propellant tanks, and they're good to go. And they've mm. got a, a pretty good, you know, pressure driven rocket. How does that compare to methane then? Because couldn't you autogenously pressurize with methane as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. Um, but methane is super low density. So this is bumping up the density, not really losing too much ISP, th- you know, theoretical ISP. Where the issue with the density is just the size of the tank that you need to store? Well, that in plus with methane being such low density, you would have to have a turbo pump because you just couldn't move it fast enough being autogenously pressurized. And so I guess that's the problem there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because like the more light and fluffy the fuel Uh is, the more of it you have to pump through, which means you have to have a turbo pump. So yeah, in the case of propylene, I guess what they're saying is you don't need the pump. Although I think you might need a fairly substantial pump if it were a fairly substantial engine or you know like a big big engine because like vector i mean we're just talking about a small rocket here this is not like an rs25 but if it were something you know on that scale i think you would probably need a turbo pump i mean i would really think so i think their patent says that they don't well i don't know if if that really scales but (laughs) sure sure (laughs) but it it can't be that easy well yeah i don't think anything's easy but I, I see what you're saying but so if it's autogenously pressurized then obviously the tank needs to be able to withstand that pressure because i thought i read in the article that uh was done by eric berger at ars technica uh, and he's always good is it i thought that that was a bit of an issue is that if you have high pressure tanks then that adds weight and they can't afford to be taking on any extra mass so Sam in the chat's pointing out Beale uh, Aerospace. Their engines were pressure fed, and they were looking at like heavy lift vehicles, right? Like mm. they're talking about getting to Geo, and they were all using pressure fed uh, engines uh, with uh, hydrogen peroxide and kerosene. So yeah, it's interesting because I, I guess I don't understand the subtleties any better than you do, David, because we're both kind of sitting here scratching mm. our heads. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not autogenously pressurized, right? So you would need right. Uh, Those are helium pressurized. Yeah, squirt it down fast enough. Yeah, yeah. I think the one thing that we can say is that turbo pumps are really complicated and difficult and tend to explode more than anything else in the rocket. <laughs> so if you can get rid of them, that's that's great, and that's. Uh, a big part of of this choice, I believe. Moving on to short and sweet, we got three of them this week. What's our first one, Ben? Uh, ULA selects the BE-4 engine for the Vulcan first stage. ULA has officially selected Blue Origin's BE-4 as the booster engine for its Vulcan rocket. The recent announcement of the selection over Aerojet Rocketdyne's AR-1 was more of a formality, but now it's official. The Vulcan first stage will be powered by two BE-4 engines, each providing 550,000 pounds of thrust. When combined with up to six GEM 63XL solid boosters, Vulcan will be capable of delivering 56,000 pounds to LEO. Another big winner in this selection is the city of Huntsville, which will be the location of a $200 million BE-4 engine manufacturing facility. Next up, Stratolaunch releases some info about its new engine. Uh, It's called the PGA Engine. 
and uh, that's as in Paul G. Allen, uh, who is the CEO. And according to Stratolaunch, it will have the highest specific impulse of any engine. So I don't know how that's possible. No exact number was given, but we do know this is a Hydrolox fuel-rich stage combustion engine capable of 200,000 pounds of thrust. Currently, the company is working on the PGA's pre-burner and plans to do a full-scale test of this component later this year at NASA's Stennis Space Center. So, yeah, that's amazing news. And SpaceX will send another company's robots to the moon in 20. 2021, at least targeting that. Although nobody won Google's Lunar X Prize this year, which called for privately funded teams to be the first to land a robotic spacecraft on the moon, one of the companies that competed, iSpace, isn't ready to give up on its lunar ambitions just yet. The Japanese company announced that it had selected SpaceX to transport its lunar lander and rovers using a Falcon 9 to carry them to lunar orbit in mid-2020, with a landing in mid-2021. If successful, iSpace could make even more money than they would have from the X Prize by acting as a contractor of choice for those looking to explore the moon. All right, so this is our inaugural data relay segment. Uh, this is a new thing we're doing for season three, um, which I think, Ben, is something that you like to call it, which I guess, yeah, it is, but we have some very lopsided seasons, um, which <laughs> a couple okay. weeks ago. So this is a new season three after 177 episodes. What this is about is actually bringing on board some people who perhaps know a little bit more than we do about a given topic and to have them talk about it, which is very similar to the interviews that we've done in the past. So it's not too different, but you have a different work workflow outlined for it. Yeah. So it, instead of like going and talking to subject matter experts, we're bringing on people with actually relatively, you know, similar amounts of knowledge as you and I, David and Dennis. Sorry, I didn't, <laughs> didn't mean to leave you. <laughs> and the new guy. Um, we're, you know, we're finding people who are also spaceflight fans. Um, and in some instances, they, they are subject matter experts. In fact, we have hopefully the next topic is going to be from a subject matter expert that's really, really, really cool. But the idea for Data Relay is that you don't necessarily have to be um, an SME to be able to present research. And so what we're doing is we're trying to bring on a bunch of different people um, with, you know, different brains, right? David and I have been doing this for a while, and I feel like we're both very set in our way. So the idea is to bring in new people, new voices, and new ways of, of looking at subject matter and at doing research. That is a pretty good summary. So I guess without further ado, we should bring on our first guest, who is Chris Bush. Uh, so how you doing? Not too bad yourself. All right. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about you and uh, what you're going to be presenting. Yeah, I graduated from uh, Illinois State University, uh, degrees in physics and physics education. I've uh, been teaching uh, high school's physics specifically, uh, like AP physics, uh, and a little bit of astronomy here for, I think this is year 11. Nice. Um, yeah, and the closest I am to a subject matter expert is in the four years of college I spent building a uh, a solar race car and doing the mm. American mm. Solar Challenge and all that. So it's been a while, and a lot of my solar knowledge is gone, but I at least have some experience there. At least you could still get a sunburn. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, right, so, so this week, uh, Chris, you're going to be talking to us about power generation in all of its shapes and forms. So before we really dig in, was there anything that uh, anything that you learned that was like particularly new to you or particularly interesting? Oh yeah, no. Um, solar, not so much. Uh, we'll, we'll get into some of the difficulties um, closer to the sun than further away, which I think aren't quite as well known. Uh, that was pretty interesting. Uh, but the most interesting for me, we'll get to last, would be uh, nuclear reactors. Specifically, mm. I wasn't quite aware of how many there were in space and still are. Um, and some of the new designs 
lines that have just been tested within the past year that look really, really interesting. All right. So you wanted to start us off with solar then, the, the boring one? Yeah, sure. We'll start off with the one <laughs> everyone knows. Um, solar, it's boring, but it's plentiful. It's fairly cheap. Um, I did some quick shopping around um, and found you can get uh, CubeSat satellite panels for like 650 a watt, you know, which is more expensive than you're going to find here on Earth, but still relatively cheap when you're talking about RTGs and nuclear reactors as your, your mm-hmm. other two power sources. They're easy to regulate. No one really cares if you launch solar panels. They're fairly reliable. As long as you're not in you know high debris or high radiation areas, they're going to last you quite a while. There's the reason why every satellite that needs power in orbit around Earth, for the most part, uh, is powered using solar panels. There are some disadvantages. You know, the the one I added that I know you Ben were was really excited to find an example for is, um, given the area, you've got two concerns that solar panels can cause. Uh, number one that most people are aware of is atmospheric drag. So especially in orbit around the Earth, especially if you have large panels like say the ISS, you've got a lot of drag that those do. Um, I know I think you guys have talked talked about it, uh, the, the International Space Station's night mode that apparently is called night flight, where uh, night side of the, the Earth, when you're not getting power from the solar panels, they, they feather the solar panels, for lack of a better term, and put them edge on to the direction of flight to reduce drag. Um, and an article I found said that since they started doing that, it saves you about literally a ton of propellant each year. It's about a thousand kilograms of propellant they don't have to wow. use to reboost because you're reducing <laughs> that drag. The other one uh, is solar pressure. So, you know, we talk about solar sails and, you know, that launch on the next Falcon Heavy is going to be really interesting, but um, the solar radiation hitting the solar cells will also act a bit as a, as a sail and, and create a bit of an impulse there. I couldn't find any examples of that being a problem, probably because it's fairly predictable and it's it's built around. Uh, but one interesting example I did find was the GOES series of satellites, which stands for Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite. For reasons that I'm not 100% clear on, um, they only have a single solar panel. They didn't want to. Uh, an article I found written by one of the the designers said, because you only have a single array on the south side, it allows the north side radiation coolers for like imaging to stay cool. So they only had one solar panel. So they actually had to have a 17 meter or a 58 foot boom with a little cone specifically designed to act as a solar sail to balance the torque that a single solar panel would cause. Yeah, if you look at the image of the GOES satellite, you can just see this sort of it is a very lopsided looking thing um so while we're while we're talking about uh, atmospheric uh effects um did you see anything about maven's uh solar rays uh no i did not i missed that yeah so th- this actually just occurred to me as we were talking about this but um the maven spacecraft of course has uh two solar rays they're both two panels each and the outer panels actually tip upward in the same direction like gull wings and the reason for that is when it dips into Mars's atmosphere, it actually shifts the center of pressure upward so that it stabilizes the aircraft as it's, or the, wow, <laughs> stabilizes the spacecraft as it's traveling through the atmosphere. It's, it's an interesting little, little complication. Um, okay. 
Go ahead. No, no, that's that's cool. Just some other disadvantages, uh, whether how much these are important, uh, who knows, but because you do have more mass out from the center, that does increase your moment of inertia. Um, so that's going to make uh, rotation more difficult. Again, predictable and, and easy to account for, but um, just an added factor. You also are much more rigid in how you point the spacecraft. So because you need to maintain power, you have to keep those perpendicular to the, the sun. So if you're trying to rotate the spacecraft, you either have to add rotation hardware to the panels to let them rotate independently, or you have to, you know, point one direction most of the time and then rotate it to make some, you know, uh, measurements or something like that, and then rotate it back. Um, in part because, you know, if, if for what you know about solar panels, the angle between the sun and the panel is a huge impact. Like the difference between dead on 90 degree incident angle to 20 degree is the vast majority of the power you're going to get out of it. So the one example I came up with this is New Horizons. There's a really fascinating book, if you ever get a chance to read it, Chasing New Horizons, um, that talks about because they had such a delay, the spacecraft had to be completely programmed, and because of weight issues and reliability issues, they didn't want to add pointing hardware to the instruments. So they pre-programmed in a series of constantly turning to make measurements, and it was constantly in motion and constantly rotating. And with solar panels, even if it was feasible at that distance, you could never pull that off because of the moment of inertia issues and just you'd lose power partway through. Um, so mm -hmm. you couldn't have those kind of quick independent maneuvering. So it does cause some maneuvering restrictions there. Durability obviously is an issue. I think it was the ISS array degrades about half a percent per year. They lose about 400 watts, I believe it was, per year just due to debris uh, strikes. You know, Obviously, that's more of an issue around Earth than you might find somewhere else. Dust covering panels, as we're clearly seeing with Opportunity, um, mm -hmm. and just in general strikes. Uh, radiation is also very much a concern, and that was part of the concern with Juno. Uh, I think they said something like, you're going to lose, it's 440 watts was expected on Jupiter entry, and then they're expecting that to grade down to a little below 400 by the end of mission just because of the high radiation environment messing up the panels. Exactly how does radiation mess with the panels? I'm not 100% sure. My guess is it's along the same lines of how radiation uh, impacts computers in that high-energy electrons going through can uh, essentially break pathways. And so it's not damaging the photovoltaics necessarily, but it does damage the connections between the photovoltaics would be my guess. For my limited experience building arrays, you also have a lot of diodes in there, uh, what are called bi bypass diodes, mm -hmm. because you usually connect the cells in series, so you want them wired so that if you lose a cell, you don't lose the whole array, so it bypasses past it. And diodes, I know, are also susceptible to uh, radiation damages, the, that PV junction and all that. I think I used the wrong abbreviation. PV would be the, the photovoltaics, I, PNP, oh, okay. for the, the which is doped to allow the electron flow in one direction or the other. So so I actually found um, an entire page, and it's a very long page. It's a solar cell radiation handbook, or at least it's, it's based on the solar cell radiation handbook, which was put out by um, JPL in 1982. Um, and so I linked that into the show notes if anybody's interested in diving in. There are so many different modes of damage, uh, inelastic collisions with atomic electrons, elastic collisions with atomic nuclei, inelastic collisions with atomic nuclei, ionization, like all these mm -hmm. different modes of damage. So totally do 
dive into this if that's interesting to you. So I guess putting solar panels in orbit around Jupiter, not as much of a good idea. <laughs> Plus, it's also Jupiter. It's kind of far away. Yeah, that was that was the next one. But actually, like I knew going into this that far away was going to be an issue, so we'll tackle that too. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite think about how much closer in is an issue as well. But to actually hit on the further away, yeah. So the the I, I wrote down the easy equation for available power is you just take 1358 divided by the square of your distance in AUs. So basically, the further away you get, um, the worse it is. And it, because it's an inverse squared, it's not just a, a linear effect. It gets much, much worse. So a chart I found in one of the two books I found that were spacecraft power technologies is around Earth, you get you know, solar flux of one. So that's about how much energy you're getting out. By the time you get to Jupiter, you're down to 0.03. So you're at 3% of the energy per cubic or square meter that you are at Earth. So using Juno as that example, uh, it has 60 square meters of solar cells. In Earth orbit, that would be 12 to 14 kilowatts of power. Uh, by the time they're on Jupiter, it was 486 watts or predicted. I, I didn't actually find the numbers it actually was. And by end of mission, they were predicting it to be down to 420. Uh, due to the radiation concerns. So, you know, you have to build these gigantic solar panels just to get a pittance of of energy out uh, by the time you're actually at one of those gas giants. Whereas comparison, you know, Mars, you're getting 36% of the energy. You get to Jupiter, and now you're down to 3% of the energy. So big difference Mm -hmm. there. Likewise, Rosetta, uh, you're talking 1,500 watts uh, in Earth orbit and then 850 around the actual comet. Um, there, there was uh, something I linked was the Solar Power for Outer Planets study uh, that actually proposed a Saturn orbital as feasible with current technology. So basically, if you remember the, the solar panels they're talking about using for Orion, they're looking at a diameter 1.2 meters larger four of them, it would give you 48 kilowatts of energy around Earth down to 335 around Saturn. So it's it's a bit of a difference. So I'm guessing then uh, technology improving is not really ever going to get you anything solar powered out at Uranus or Neptune. It, it might. Like there there was proposals for those. Um, yeah. The, because there's, there's solar concentrators, there's uh, improving photovoltaics. Because keep in mind, anything we launch in space is at least a couple generations behind what we use on Earth. You know, because you have to worry about radiation shielding and, and all of that. Um, and here on Earth, you know, efficiency is increasing all the time. So, but keep in mind, on Earth, your maximum, like theoretical maximum, ignoring efficiency, is about on the Earth's surface about a thousand uh, watts per uh, square meter. So you can run a hairdryer off of a square meter of solar cells, and that's that's your best you're gonna get. So there's there's a limited level of technology that you can. There's a limited room for gap, and then it's just, hey, let's put three football fields worth of solar panels on this thing to get something out of it. Right, right. So that's the outer planets, and that's what everyone expects out of this. The interesting one is the the inner planets, because temperature has a huge impact on photovoltaics. Um, so as, as the quick reminder, what allows solar cells to work is the photoelectric effect. So ignoring all the impacts on history of quantum physics, you've got electrons coming in, they hit the atoms, um, atoms that or, or electrons that are in these higher energy levels can basically absorb these photons and they get ionized, they get emitted. And emitted electrons is electricity. 
well, the faster these things come in, or let, let me rephrase this, temperature is, if you remember thermodynamics at all, temperature is uh, how fast the molecules are moving, right? So the hotter the solar cells get, the faster they're already moving, so the less energy, extra energy mm -hmm. you can get out of the photo photovoltaics. So the hotter they are, the less efficient they run. So the same array around Earth can actually get less power out around the sun, or at least less efficiency, because while there's more solar flux, so you're hitting, getting more hitting the cells, you do have that issue with heat. And if you actually look at a graph of, if you graph current versus voltage for a photovoltaic, you get kind of a rectangle curve. You know, it's a straight horizontal line, then it kind of curves and goes straight vertical. And where you get the most power out of is that, that little corner. So as you get closer, the current increases, but the voltage decreases because of mm. that difference in energy. So, for example, Messenger, the uh, the satellite that went and orbited Mercury and where we have a lot of our, our radar images of the surface and stuff like that, um, mm -hmm. only two-thirds of the cells on that solar panel were actually photovoltaics. The other one-third were mirrors to actually reflect sunlight to help cool down the, the solar mm -hmm. panels without needing active cooling. And then the other interesting one was uh, Parker Solar Probe that uh, I've heard you guys talking about a couple times. That one actually has two arrays. It has one array to use until it gets pretty close to the sun. Then it folds that in. And then you've got two smaller arrays that are actively cooled. Um, and there was actually kind of an interesting quote that for every watt of power they get, they have to spend 13 watts cooling it as they get close to the sun. So... They had to go with smaller arrays because of that heat issue, and then once they're through the actual pass, they tuck them behind the heat shield and only have a tiny little corner sticking out, which gets them enough energy, but they essentially have to do the same as cooling the living room of your house for those tiny little corners of the solar array. So, yeah, I thought I, I thought that was interesting <laughs> of the, the inner planet issues with solar as well, because you always think of, well, it's easier because there's more sun. Well, there's also some more temperature going down there, too. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, I think that about finishes up with... Uh, uh, with solar cells, uh, RTGs. So interesting thing I did not expect. These were actually first used on weather satellites uh, in the late 50s and early 60s because battery technology sucks so much. They actually used some RTGs on some of the early uh, early options. I also did not know RTGs were used to power power uh, lighthouses in Russia, but that was interesting as well. <laughs> so yeah, mo most people again are aware of RTGs. Essentially, uh, you have some sort of radioactive material. As it decays, it releases heat. Um, you then have thermal couples, uh, basically two wires that when at different temperatures will produce voltage for reasons I don't want to get into because I barely remember. And so you have one side basically cooled to space through radiators, one side attached to this decaying material, and you get electricity. They are fairly inefficient. Like for example, Curiosity's uh, RTG produces two kilowatts of thermal energy, but only 125 watts of usable electrical energy. Just because thermal couples are by their nature inefficient radiation is or radiators are not that efficient so it'll get you electricity but it'll get you a lot more heat than anything else other noteworthy uses of rtgs other than deep space probes was all of the apollo uh, landings had rtgs uh, some assembly required they uh they shipped with the nuclear material separate from the actual housing so part of the moonwalks where they had to fuel the RTGs and then attach them to the science experiments to allow those to run long term. The nice thing is, is they are super reliable. 
There is no recorded uh, issues with thermocouples failing. The material they use, plutonium-238, more on that later, is decays at a very predictable about 0.8% a year. So you don't have to worry about, oh, we got hit by a sudden radiation spike and we lost half a panel, and now we got to mm -hmm. worry about less. It's pretty much it goes and it keeps on going. Uh, there's not a, not a whole lot of issue, issues there. Um, it's also very compact. So again, New Horizons was able to make all those turns in part because it just had a little RTG sticking out of it and not giant, enormous 75 football fields worth of solar panels. And also, if it's smaller, you're reducing your risk of debris strikes and, and reliability and all of that. So it gets you power where there's no solar energy or anything like that, and it's fairly compact. The disadvantages, however, they are many. First of all, it's fairly low power. I mean... 125 watts is not exactly anything to write home about. Cost is certainly an issue. Um, the, the report itself was kind of hard to figure out exactly what they were talking about, but looking at Cassini for one of its three RTGs in 2015 dollars, it would be about, or actually it might have been for all three RTGs. Regardless, it was about 214 million dollars just for the power sources. And that was back when we had a lot more plutonium. Yeah, Cassini, I'm not surprised. That's so expensive. And I guess, you know, you're spending over 200 million on <laughs> on just the power generation. Yeah. So, and, and we'll get to part of the reason for that cost is the fuel supply. And there are alternatives, some actually very interesting. But yeah, cost is certainly an issue. You're not getting much power. Um, so talking about the fuel supply. So one of the big things that's fairly well known is there's not a whole lot of plutonium. So the fuel currently used for RTGs is plutonium-238, which just worth noting because I've seen like on Reddit and stuff discussions, keep in mind 238 is not the plutonium used in nuclear weapons. That's 239. Right. So there is a difference there because I've seen way too many people with, well, what if they steal it and use it for nuclear weapons? Well, 238 doesn't work like that. It needs that extra neutron. So right now the U.S. supplies about 30 kilograms of usable plutonium, 60 kilograms total. That other 30 could be used if you added more plutonium into the mix. Is it added more plutonium or enriched it? Um, if you add more in is what the articles I found were saying. So basically you've got a pile of stuff that's fairly decayed, but if you add more in and mixed up some more of that new stuff with decayed, it would still give you a reasonable amount to use as an RTG. It probably wouldn't last as long as Voyager, but it would last the duration of the mission. So that gives us enough for three more Curiosity-sized RTGs. Uh, we know the Mars 2020 rover is taking one of them, and then we could get another two out of our current supply, but that's when we would need new plutonium. But those could be made available by 2021. Uh, since 93, I believe most of our plutonium we actually bought was actually bought from uh, Russia, and apparently mm -hmm. their supply is getting very low as well, ignoring current political issues. So that's that's the concern. And we'll get into plutonium production in a second. There are options. So all you need is something that decays. You don't need plutonium. So the, the kind of interesting ones I've seen, uh, strontium-90 uh, was actually used for several Soviet RTGs. Uh, it's not quite as efficient. You don't get quite as much energy out of it. Uh, I believe it's about half. Yeah, it's about half the energy density. No, not quite. It's uh, about 80% of the energy density of plutonium, but it's a much shorter half-life. Plutonium 238's mm -hmm. half-life is in the 80-year range, 87.7 apparently. Strontium is 28.8, .8, so you're not going to get as long duration out of it. But it can work. Polonium 210 
I saw was apparently explored, which is really interesting because polonium-210, aside from being a ridiculous beta emitter, is one of the most toxic substances known. That's the one that people are getting poisoned in Eastern Europe, right? Yeah, I think it's something like a milligram is enough to kill you. It's some nasty stuff, but it is also a ridiculous beta emitter. I actually have a sample of it in my classroom. A microgram, I'm not poisoning students with it, but... Mm. uh, yeah, that was certainly an interesting package to open up. Just a funny anecdote with that. I actually have, yeah, a little uh, Geiger counter with three samples, and one of them is a mm. polonium-210, and that sample's actually missing. So I'm a little <gasps> concerned about the feds, you know, <laughs> come knocking on my door at some point. So if I suddenly, you know, disappear, you guys, I guess, will know why. Hey, if it makes you feel better, it's probably all gone by now, because its half-life is only 130 days. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I bought my sample two years ago, and I need to go buy another one, because it does not last very long. So I kind of turned Phew. this, the capacitor of the RTG world, its energy density is 280 times that of plutonium. Uh, it's at half a gram can reach uh, 900 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's not going to last very wow. long. So if for some reason you need a very short-lived, very high-energy RTG, uh, polonium is the source for you. But yeah. it would pretty much be dead by the time you got past the orbit where solar cells are useful. So I'm not yeah. sure why they mm -hmm. studied this so much. It'd be very niche. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, it's cool nonetheless. And then the last uh, last one I saw seriously investigated, and this one's really, really cool, is Americium 241. It's a lot more accessible because it's a very common byproduct that's easily ex extracted from nuclear waste. It has less energy density. You need more shielding for it because it puts out more gamma radiation than pl plutonium does. Um, but what's really interesting about it, interesting about it is, so plutonium is in like the 87.7 years for its half-life. Americium is 432 years. So you Ooh. need a bigger one. You need more shielding. It's more mass. But this is one actually look at, being looked at for if you want to launch an interstellar probe. Um, Ameris, and an Americium mm. RTG could get you to Alpha Centauri with, with time wow, to spare, yeah. in theory. That's also a really cool element uh, because it's artificial. It does not occur in nature. Next up I had just to kind of carry on from uh, RTGs would be actually a fu fission reactor. Uh, almost said fusion reactor. That'd be a lot cooler. That would be really cool. Uh, fusion reactor. Uh, like I said, they, there's actually been a quite a few more uh, than I expected. Uh, the U.S. has launched one uh, as part of the the SNAP program that I forgot to write down what that acronym's for. Oh, Systems for Nuclear Auxiliary Power. Mostly hmm. it was testing RTGs, uh, but SNAP-10A actually launched a uh, a full-on reactor. Uh, there's actually a picture in the show notes uh, that shows a, a man standing next to it, and it's about twice as tall as he is. Um, so it was not small. The USSR, by the way, has thrown 33 of them. Uh, 31 were uh, called BES-5s, and two were called Topaz, which actually the U.S. made a deal in the late 90s to actually take a Topaz reactor and kind of backwards engineer it mm -hmm. for actually investigating stuff. For the most part, uh, these are what are called uh, fast neutron reactors. So they are all uh, basically the kind they use on, say, nuclear submarines. They used highly enriched uranium fuel, so it's not the usual mostly uranium-238 some uranium-239. There's a lot higher percentage of 239. So the reaction is a lot more active, so you can have smaller reactors. It also requires a lot more cooling. So instead of water, these tend to use uh, liquid sodium a lot more <laughs> frequently. So the USSR used them actually for what are called ROARSATs, uh, that actually used radar. So because radar was so power-hungry, they, they 
felt the need to launch these nuclear reactors that were used for like tracking carrier groups through the ocean and things like that. The interesting thing being, so one of these core nuclear cores did actually re-enter and kind of spread a bunch of debris over Canada, which caused some issues, political and otherwise. But <laughs> these reactors actually, they didn't move the satellite into a graveyard orbit. And I didn't find the exact mechanism, but they actually just blew the reactor core out of the satellite and launched the reactor core into an orbit. Oh, that's so <laughs> really cool. reverse keystone. But it also caused a crap ton of space debris because all of the mm -hmm. coolant came flying out and you had all this now solid sodium and, and other coolants and stuff in low Earth orbit that took a couple of years to decay. So they didn't have the radioactive core as debris, but they had a whole bunch of other stuff as debris. Yeah, see, I didn't know that there were just these nuclear reactors just, just like floating in medium earth orbit i guess or whatever that's that's yeah that's insane so it's about 32 of them because one of them i think i wrote down ejected except when the course decided to meet canada um yeah <laughs> yeah so that's that's historically what we've used um and there are a bunch of positives there you know you're talking about a thousand times plus the output you're going to get out of an rtg you don't have the solar issues you can make these relatively compact at least compared to to satellites or sorry solar panels but you do have the safety issues of you are launching several kilograms of highly rich uranium uh every launch i think that has ever launched nuclear material pretty much since the 70s has been protested um so politically and, and safety wise there are some concerns there um in terms of like colonization uh, small fission reactors are probably your best bet because uh, if you're talking the moon, solar's great, except the fact that you've got half a month where you're in darkness, which proves a problem. And yeah. although I did see some plans of having excess solar and then like melting rock underground and then tapping mm -hmm. that melted rock with thermal couples yeah. to actually power yeah. around the dark side. I mean, we're, we're pretty much doing that now on Earth anyway. Um, just with salt instead of molten rock, but yeah. Yeah, but there have been a couple designs. So there was one called Safe 400 um, that was really cool in part because it was literally bought with discretionary funds on on scientists' own time. Like in their free cool. time with just some spare cash lying around, they built this reactive a reactor that was designed to be mm. passively safe. That means in a failure, it automatically defaults to a safe state. Um, it was going to last 10 years. It'd be 100 kilowatts of electricity. They actually got to the point of fission testing with that. What came from that, uh, and I just love the names for these, so they did a, a test called Duff, desktop using flat top fusions, which was a <laughs> relatively cheap test of actually testing some of these nuclear cores um, and testing something called heat pipes. So I mentioned that so liquid sodium was used as a coolant in these reactors, but these heat pipes are essentially you run and they're still made of sodium, but they're solid metal and you actually run these through the core. They're not at risk of like the neutron activation nearly as much, or at least not on the outside part of it. So instead of having to pump coolant through, um, use these heat pipes to withdraw the heat and they're, they're naturally, naturally, what's the term I'm looking for regulating. So as the core heats up, because it's putting out too much energy, it expands. And because it expands, it moves the uranium further away and it slows the reaction. Mm. And as it cools, it compresses, which naturally increases the reaction. So even if you lost all human interaction, it wouldn't go critical. It would just keep expanding and contracting and maintaining a normal output. So they, the key thing with this 
stuff test was they were able to test this fairly cheap because the problem when you're using enriched uranium is not only the cost of making it and getting it, but all of the security concerns because enriched uranium is also weapons grade. So mm-hmm. any test you run with that, you have to have Marines around and, you know, it's several days to run the test and several more days to let it cool down before you can store it. And that adds a lot of expense. So this was a, a way of showing that, hey, we can test this stuff safely. This has then led to uh, the Kilopower project, which was actually just in April. The first successful test was announced uh, in a test called Krusty. So I just love that we have Duff and Krusty because apparently there's <laughs> there's Simpsons fans. Um, but Krusty is the kilopower reactor using sterling technology. And the idea is it's a, still a highly enriched uranium core, but it uses these heat pipes. So you don't have to worry about pumps for coolant or cooling the coolant. Like it's all, it's all self-built in. A thousand watts electrical. It's only about 400 kilograms and it should be less than 200, or sorry, not 200 million, 20 million to build it. So they think that theoretically you can get over almost a thousand times the output of one of those, uh, you know, Curiosity RTGs for a little bit less weight and about a tenth of the cost, which we'll, we'll see if that happens because, you know, the nature of, of experimental projects. But eventually they think they can ramp this up to a top of uh, a, a target of 10 kilowatts uh, for 1500 kilograms. And the reason they mentioned Sterling technology is they're literally just running these heat pipes to little like two-stroke Sterling engines. And Sterling engines, while they're still moving parts, they're super simple, super reliable. Can Sterling engines run without gravity? Are they gradient powered or is it... No, I guess they're valves pushing air up and down. So, okay, never mind. Yeah, so uh, you can just run it with gas in there and you can close cycle it. So you don't have to, you can make it yeah. a closed system. You don't have to have an external system. But yeah, for this, you only need a single single rod what they call a neutron poison rod that just is in the center. You pull that out and you got control. Um, and you don't need, because it's self-regulating, you shouldn't need to be constantly entering, you know, putting it in, pulling it out like you do for a common, you know, everyday nuclear reactor. It should just kind of run itself. So still enriched uranium, which isn't preferable. But yeah, so I, I put a, a picture of the test in the show notes. Again, they were able to test this all relatively simply. Um, like they were able to build a core out of depleted uranium because that's still got a lot of 238 in it um, and just heat up the rods and run a full test without the core and show it works. And then they went and, you know, got the core and put part of it in a vacuum chamber. And it's just, you see this, this little core up on top, there's a chunk in a vacuum chamber where the heat rods or heat pipes came through. And then you just see like six or seven Sterling engines and every test they put it through looked like it passed successfully, um, including like what happens if you suddenly lose power? What if you suddenly increase the power? How do you scram the reactor and, and all those things? Granted, it was still probably in the millions of dollars, but in terms of testing nuclear technology, this was really right. cheap. Like it was a shoestring budget, um, and they pulled it off. It's it's actually looking very very promising, and, and I'll talk a little bit about it later. But using a nuclear reactor could enable a Mars base much better than the football fields worth of solar cells you would need for it. Um, and then you could also have like you know how cool much cooler would it have been if New Horizons had a radar probing the surface of of Pluto and Charon. You know you can have those high power applications that you can't do with RTGs. You know, ion engines can run a lot longer, things like that. So there's all sorts of things if we get nuclear reactors going in space that that would enable. All right, fuel cells are the last one, and I'm, I apologize to the people excited in, in Discord about fuel cells. They're the ones I did the least <laughs> research on because they're kind of the least amount of research going on. Fuel cells, uh, they've been used on every single U.S. crewed mission. I believe they're also going to be on Orion. 
I don't, I don't believe they are on um, either Crew Dragon or Starliner. Yeah, Starliner. Sorry, I want to say Star Chaser for some reason. Yeah, every NASA system has used fuel cells. They're effectively just a larger battery without quite the efficiency issues. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different types I found, but you know, the fundamental thing is you take oxygen, liquid oxygen, you take liquid hydrogen, you put them together, you get energy, water, and you get heat. So it's really nice from the fact of you don't have to carry separate supplies of like energy and water because water is a, a kickback from the fuel cells. Uh, that was part of the issue with Apollo 13 is when they lost the fuel cells, they lost potable water. You get some heat out of them so you don't have to run electric heaters as much. So they've got some advantages over batteries. You know, they help with life support. That's great. They can be charged in space. So the main advantage is batteries are, you know, naturally rechargeable or not naturally, but very easily rechargeable. Uh, fuel cells could be recharged. So if you had solar panels, you could capture the the resulting water and then through electrolysis, split that water, compress it down, cool it down, turn it back into to the, the liquids used in the fuel cells or gases used in the fuel cells, depending on the type. And it would be the same as recharging the battery. Problem is that nearly doubles the mass of the fuel cell. So unless you're not concerned about mass, they don't have the life cycle issues batteries do. Um, so for very long-term, like colony mission, fuel cells would probably be more attractive than batteries themselves. But they, they do have size, uh, both volume and mass constraints. The one thing I did find as an advantage is the telemetry is actually a lot easier for fuel cells. Because instead of having to determine exactly how much charge is left on a battery, and you know, you've got the fact that batteries follow a voltage curve, so there's always that level of, okay, when exactly? is it going to dip for a fuel cell you're just looking at how much fuel is in the tank you know you don't have to worry about the the technicalities of electric charge so if you can read a fuel tank for a rocket you can read a fuel tank for a fuel cell um, so it actually makes them more predictable than batteries but yeah the problem is just especially as battery technologies improved it looks like fuel cells have kind of fallen out of favor unless you've got uh, the life support concerns but as from what I found it does not look like the ISS uses fuel cells at all unless I missed that nope I think you're right so because they have their own methods of water and fuel cells are kind of by their nature short term like unless you want all that extra mass you're just going to have to constantly be replenishing the fuel whereas batteries will just charge and recharge as long as they live mm-hmm. and uh our, i saw our arcade engineer pointed out that ics uses electrolysis for oxygen production which is kind of the opposite of the fuel cell which is absolutely mm-hmm. true reverse fuel cell just not kind of in the the power generation part but no it's it, it's definitely doable it's just um, if you took that electrolysis, then you would have to have this whole cycle of compression and cooling and cryogenics. So for something like a Mars mission that's doing ISRU, you're already going to have to have that compression and cryogenics. So for something like that, fuel cells mm. might make more sense um, because it's very long term. You know, If you've got something there for four years generating uh, fuel, you might have battery life and cycle concerns. So fuel cells might make sense in a context like that. You're already launching a bunch of mass with a little bit more. But it's not currently really in favor. The last thing is talking about surface missions, because we talked about a lot about deep space probes and all that, because that's generally where the concern is right now. Um, I did find a, uh, a study that was done uh, doing a fi- looking at a 500-day Mars mission, assuming some RS- uh, ISRU production, assuming oxygen production uh, from the carbon dioxide, all that. Um, and what it found was if you use solar, you need 500 and, or 5,800 square meters of solar panels, uh, which is going to run you about 22,000 kilograms worth of solar panels. Mm. You would have to constantly be cleaning those to get full efficiency. Um, you're only running your fuel 
fuel production uh, a day at a time, you know, half a day, because you're not going to have enough storage for all that. Meanwhile, if you assume you get that 10 kilowatt uh, reactor that they're looking for, uh, you would need three of them for 4,500 kilograms. So it should be a lot lighter mass a lot fewer things to go wrong and same thing with the moon the moon solar is great except for those those two weeks so you'd have to have uh some sort of energy sink uh so you'd have to overproduce during those first two weeks and then rely on whatever stored system you have for the last two and uh that's pretty much it for my like four page uh oh sorry eight page <laughs> uh script i came up with so that's most of what I found. And there are a couple of really interesting books. You know, if someone's interested in that, uh, that kilopower, uh, a blog beyond Nerva uh, that focuses all about nuclear and space had like a four part blog post on, on the history of Duff and kilopower and what it all means and how the tests went. And that was really, really interesting. You know, this was, this was fantastic. I learned a lot of new stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I look forward to see how many correction burns there are next week as people start sending <laughs> tweets of it. Well, he got that wrong. <laughs> so, uh, well, Chris Bush, thank you so much for stopping in and just dumping a load of knowledge on us. Yeah. That's kind of what it felt like. Yeah. I'm already working on my next one. So hopefully that one's a little, a little bit shorter. You want to give us a little teaser for your next one? It's, uh, it's very similar, only making you go and slightly more long-term than this one. How's that for a oh, teaser? Cool. All right. Thanks a lot. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got one launch, really. So the Falcon 9 Block 5 will be launching SALCOM 1A, the first of two SALCOM Constellation satellites tasked with hydrology and land observation, on October 7th. 222 UTC from Space Launch Complex 4E at Vandenberg Air Force Base. Yay, I'm hoping to go see that, but uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. I'll keep my fingers crossed. Yeah, first West Coast RTLS, so that'll be pretty cool. And then the other thing we have is uh, Soyuz is coming home. So on October 4th at 3.30 a.m., uh, coverage uh, 3:30 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, coverage will begin for the undocking of Soyuz MSO8. Um, the actual undocking is scheduled to take place at 3:57 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, the deorbit and landing coverage uh, begins at 6:30 a.m. Eastern Time. So the deorbit burn is scheduled at 6:51 a.m. Eastern Time, and landing is scheduled at 7:45 a.m. Eastern Time. That's really early. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to watch that one. Um, and then, of course, afterwards, they always do, at least this time around, they're doing uh, uh, like a post-landing activity wrap-up, which is kind of cool. Anyway, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And so that means it is time to deorbit the show. We would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for Patreon, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And that's all, so we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. So long.